and welcome everybody to another episode of Smart Money Circle. I'm your host, Adam Sarhan. With me today is Jim Bruett, CPA, CFP, Principal, and CEO of Sullivan, Bruett, Spiros, and Blamey LLC, with approximately $4.3 billion in assets under management. Jim, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Well, thanks for having me, Adam. So, Jim, can you uh, begin by letting us know your story and how you got involved in the business? Sure, happy to. Uh, the name of the firm is Sullivan Bruett Spiros and Blaney, as you said. Uh, SBSB. Uh, that's SBSB, not BSBS, by the way. Okay. Um, at any rate, we started the firm in 1991 with what was then a novel concept: uh, fee-based advice, combining portfolio management, financial planning, and also tax preparation. It seems pretty routine now. A lot of advisors do this, but uh, back then it was new. And being fee-based was enough to stand out in the marketplace because so many advisors were paid on a commission basis or uh, based on moving client money around. So that was our start. Uh, we started with zero under management and and practically no revenue. And now, 30 years later, we've worked ourselves uh, up to a firm with uh, between five and 10 CPAs and somewhere around 20 certified financial planners. So it's been a, it's been a pretty good experience. Well, congratulations. That's an excellent, excellent story. So before I go any further, I know I have a lot of people interested. How do you go about, or how did you, and how would you recommend going about acquiring customers in today's landscape? So in the past, our business was based exclusively on doing a great job for clients and then encouraging them to refer their friends and colleagues. We used to, uh, we still do, talk a lot about surprising and delighting the clients, doing things that they don't expect you to do. Uh, in an effort to drive home the point that your relationship's really important uh, to us as a firm. I think uh, all advisors should be giving that a certain amount of emphasis. So we have built this business based on referrals from friends and clients around the Washington, D.C. area where we are. It, today, though, you have to do a little bit more. It's It's very interesting. Even when a client refers a friend to us and suggests that they give us a call, before they do that, the, uh, a, a client today will spend some time on the internet looking us up. And so our digital presence is really important. Uh, all firms need to work on it. Uh, even if people do get referred, they are going to check you out, and there's a lot more uh, data out there where they can do their own homework before calling you. So that would be the biggest difference uh, between, say, the 1990s and and today. Yeah, I love it. I find it fascinating. From zero AUM to 4.3 billion, I mean, from referrals and, and word of mouth, very well done. What would be an example, Jim, of something going above and beyond that you recommend people do for their clients, as far as like a tangible example? So, I think if when you when you look at advisors or anybody in our business, you can pretty quickly put them in one of two camps. 
One would be primarily investment firms who might help clients some with the other questions they have, but it's really not their focus. Their focus is investing. And then the second camp of advisors is financial planners who manage money. And we are as far in that second camp as you can get, I believe. And we think it's perfectly normal for us not to just talk to the clients about the importance of estate planning, but go to the attorney's office and work through all the real world issues in getting their will set up properly. Or uh, having their insurance agent come in and have us participate in the review of whatever proposals they're going to be making. Uh, it's not at all unusual for us to get involved in uh, umbrella liability oh, insurance, wow. topics that are off the, you know, that are not typically in the domain of investment people. I love it. Uh, we want to we help their kids. Right. So we have a couple of events a year geared specifically for 17 to 24-year-old uh, kids of our clients where we do basic financial, uh, you know, covering uh, finance 101 for people just getting started. So it's, it's that kind of value-added service that uh, we want to offer as planners who manage money. I love that. That's really, really good. Uh, so I understand, Jim, you sold your business in 2003, and then you bought it back in 2016. Can you talk a little about that, please? Yes. We have a uh, – it's a fairly unique history. We were we were humming along. We had started in 91, and in 2002, the Bank of Montreal, uh, the uh, second or third largest bank in Canada, approached us. And to make a long story short, we ended up selling the business to them. And we spent 13 years as a subsidiary of the Bank of Montreal. And then we bought the firm back in 2016. So most firms that you would talk to that have had our experience, sold the firm and then bought it back, generally have a really negative story. Something didn't work. The buyer didn't fulfill their promises. The cultures clashed. Generally, it's a pretty negative story. Not that way for us. Uh, we have high regard for the Bank of Montreal. They're a really good organization, ethical from top to bottom, which is, you can't say that about everyone in the banking industry. And they never did anything that really harmed uh, our business. Uh, the reason we ended up buying it back was we felt the need to make some investments in the business, change the direction a little bit. And the reality became we were an extremely small fish in a very big pond. The Bank of Montreal had other fish to fry. So we made the decision uh, that we probably should do something uh, completely different in the direction of the business. So it was very amicable negotiations. We, uh, we bought the firm back. So... I now have been through every stage of, a, of an investment business, all the way from brand new startup to being a subsidiary of one of the largest banks in North America, and now to kind of a large regional. So uh, we have 
seen it all in this little firm. I love it. No, I, I have a house up in Canada and I'm a big fan of BMO. They, they are fantastic. So I, I can echo what you're saying a hundred percent. Um, yeah, Bank of Montreal, based in Toronto. I'm not sure how that came about. It's, it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> Probably acquisitions, right? Like Bank of America and Nations Bank, and then they took the name. Something along those yeah, lines. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, all-time reference for people that remember. Um, okay, so you now manage, uh, Jim, more than $4 billion in assets under management. How do you invest it for your clients? And what are some questions you're getting from your clients these days? And if they're any different than they were before, if it's all the same, or if you could speak to a little, those two points for me, I'd appreciate it. Uh, sure. Sure. So, um, you know, as, as I mentioned earlier, we're, uh, financial planners at heart. We do the taxes for a large number of our clients. So we're actively involved in all of the important details of their financial life. And so, uh, as a result of that, we tend to end up managing their serious money, what I would call their serious money, the money that has to be around for retirement, the money they want to grow for the long term and the money that they're counting on to uh, accomplish their long-term goals. So our investment system sort of reflects that, uh, what we're being asked to do by our clients. We don't do a lot of market timing. We don't do a lot of speculating. Uh, we do recognize that there's only a few things that you can absolutely control in the whole investment process, uh, cost, you can, you can control the management costs that you're paying inside a portfolio. We use a lot of mutual funds, more ETFs, exchange traded funds, really. And the data is pretty clear on that. Low cost funds generally tend to do better than the higher cost funds that uh, emphasize stock picking. So cost is something we can control. Tax efficiency is another thing that you can control. The data is pretty clear on that too. Tax efficient strategies generally tend to outperform higher turnover tax inefficient uh, strategies after you figure out, after you figure what you keep after tax. So cost and tax efficiencies are hallmarks of our um, system. We believe in global diversification. Everybody, all the way from teenagers to our retired 80-year-olds, all get a blend of both U.S. and foreign stocks. We believe that adds value over long periods of time. Uh, but maybe the most important thing that we do is make sure that clients set the risk level properly of their portfolio. And we work hard on helping them maintain the discipline to stay with a strategy, even when it's out of favor. You know, when, when a client takes more risk than they're really prepared to take, generally speaking, they figure that out when the markets are awful, right. as they are incurring losses in the portfolio that are way more than they ever envisioned, primarily because they're taking more risk than they probably should have. And so, of course, that's the worst time to be making major changes to your portfolio during a serious correction. So uh, we spend a lot of time talking to clients about what a down market is going to look like in in uh, in their portfolio. So if we do this, 
here's where the worst case or something approximating the worst case might look like. And we have lots of uh, historical data. So um, that's really it. The hallmarks of our system, cost, tax efficiency, global diversification, making sure the risk level is right, and then recognizing that lots of different investment strategies will succeed uh, or could succeed, but none will if you don't stick with it when it's out of favor. I love that. That's really good. And it's a good way to segue to my next question. Uh, how do you handle risk and what mistakes do you see people make with respect to risk management? Um, I have a saying on that. Clients are happy to take risk all day long. It's losing money they don't like. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and and so it's true. Uh, I've found that in the up years, like 2019, uh, clients are focused on the percentage gain, but in the down years, they're interested in the dollars lost. And so um, this is really important. Um, there's only a few time-tested ways of helping clients control risk that we know will work. Uh, we don't happen to believe that being in the market when it's going up and getting out when it's going down is a realistic method to control risk. So we don't really try to do that for clients. Uh, market timing, there is, no, uh, there is no reliable statistical evidence that concludes that that uh, is going to add value. Uh, and the most successful investors in America would pretty much all say the same thing. They don't believe they have a uh, capability of, of calling the short-term movements in the market. So in the end, Adam, it ends up being all about diversification, getting the right blend of asset classes into the portfolio. You know, if you're properly diversified, Every year, you'll have one corner of the portfolio that, that is not keeping up, has either lost more than the rest of the portfolio or has, uh, or has made less than the rest of the portfolio. And that's, that's generally the hallmark uh, of a well-constructed portfolio. So it's, it's proper diversification, putting asset classes together so that the whole pot um, – behaves in a way that is acceptable to the client. So, you know, it's not unlike yeah. mixing a soup, right? You yeah. put uh, the certain amount of vegetables in, you put the certain amount of broth and meats in, and the hope is that when combined properly, you're going to get the result you're looking for. Understood 100%. But you, have, you brought up a few really good points, Jim, that I want to just ask to clarify so I understand, and the audience as well. So diversified portfolio is a good way of managing risk. Peter Lynch, the famous uh, value investor or GARP investor from Fidelity, had a great line where he said, you know, be careful of being too diversified because it's diversification or you, it's worse instead of better. How do you diversify a portfolio in a way that's, I guess, proper? And also you mentioned you talk to clients and you're big on planning and you prepare them mentally for bear markets and big declines. And if you're in a diversified portfolio and that decline, it's, you're expecting a decline, how do you separate the two? 
In other words, is it too is it too over diversified where it becomes diversified? How do you make sure that doesn't happen? And then how do you protect from the actual downturn? Or is it just, hey, the sea is going to get bumpy now or the turbulence in the airplane, the turbulence will pass. And when it passes, we'll fly and then we'll have a safe landing. Don't worry about the turbulence. It's fine. In other words, if you could speak to those two points, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, diversification is a great term. It resonates. It resonates. People get it. And when I think, when I hear that word, I think you're talking about somebody doing a bad job putting a portfolio together. So um, let's first talk about what do we mean by risk? What are we really trying to accomplish? Well, to me, risk is the amount of fluctuation in the portfolio balance from year to year. So if I started with $3 million in a down year, does it fall to $2 million or does it fall to $2.5 million? And then in a good year, does it move up to $3.5 million or does it move up to $4 million? So it's volatility. It's, it's the up and down movements of a portfolio. That can be handled with diversification. You can set that volatility almost anywhere you want. But the real art is getting the range of returns where you want it, but also over long periods of time earning enough okay. so that you can get where you want to go. We're getting we're getting really wonky here, Adam. Are you sure your your audience is up to this? Yeah, you go as deep as you want because these are a high level <laughs> audience and they ask some really intelligent questions. And a lot of the audience are institutional guys or other financial advisors and and or sophisticated in high net worth individuals. So there you as, go. As then. deep as you want to go. Um, by all means. So uh, then we'll keep going. The uh, the you know you do a financial plan. One of the outputs of a financial plan is what rate of return is needed for you to accomplish the important goals. Retire at a specified age. Get your kids through four years of college. Uh, working to age 60, working to 65. So the financial planning process is really important here. Let's just take an example. We conclude that this client needs 6% per year or inflation plus three, take your pick, over the next 20 or 30 years to get where they want to go. So we start there. Here's the level of risk that you probably need to take in order to earn that return. Okay. If we want to earn six, your expectation should be in the good years, positive, you know, whatever the number is going to be, and the down years where we will spend most of our energy talking about the down years and what is a realistic expectation through a quote-unquote typical bear market, what is the down year going to look like in this portfolio. So you can't just focus on risk and you can't just focus on return. You have to put them together in a knowledgeable way. So risk adjusted so, returns. So that's it. Yeah. And a good example of diversification versus diversification. When you ask yourselves historically, where's a good place to put my money when the stock market is falling, when the stock market's in a bear market cycle, 
where should I be put? What corners of my portfolio should do well and where should I put that money? Well, the answer, if you look at data, one of the very good answers is longer term treasuries. What asset class does well when the stock market's correcting? And the answer is long term treasuries. So even though people are looking at bonds today and saying, geez, long-term treasuries paying 3% or something in that range, that doesn't seem very attractive. Well, they, they miss one very important point, and that is when the stock market falls 30, that those long-term treasuries probably going to go up double digits. Right, and that's the thing. And so the there's an example yeah. of uh, diversification that gives you a chance of working. I love it. So that's fantastic. And again, just so you know, Jim, for the show and for the audience as well, the goal, I mean, it's a smart money circle, right? The goal is to learn from people like yourself who are the smart money. So that's why I ask you the bet. questions. I just want to learn. I mean, that's kind of the whole point. So, okay, great. That's You did a really good job of explaining that difference and now we get it. So uh, I guess if you can't time the market, when would be a good way of preparing that shift into more treasuries or the asset classes that would do well or work, you know, fall less in a bear market if it's not timing? A very, very timely topic uh, right now. Right. Because everybody knows, anyone in our business knows, we've been in an 11-year bull market. It's the longest economic expansion on record or close to it. And uh, trees don't grow to the sky. This expansion won't <laughs> last forever. Right. Uh, are we at the end? I can't tell you how many times we get that question. And um, the, a point to be uh, that we shouldn't be losing now is that it is one of the, if not the longest expansion on record, but it's not the most robust. Right. If you look at the total economic growth from the bottom in 2009 till today, it hasn't grown as much as previous expansions. So the bottom line is um, this expansion could go on. It would not stun us to see this expansion go on another year or two and and the bull market uh, to go on for the same amount. So that is a tough uh, a tough question to answer with any kind of confidence. When will the bear market end? So I think most successful advisors should not try to answer it Understood. and should manage the size of the bets they're making on uh, the bull market ending. Understood. So as an example, yeah. what do we do with cash today? We would probably... I think the arguments for dollar cost averaging into the market are pretty pretty strong right now. Don't rush. Um, maybe you want to have a target equity allocation. If you normally have 70% of your portfolio in stocks, maybe 60 or 65 is a better number for you now. And then in a year or two, when and if the uh, the bear market has begun, consider moving to your long-term allocation at that time. Understood. So uh, rather than trying to predict when the rain's going to start, I'd rather just have an umbrella handy so when it is raining, uh, we know when to pull it up and what we're going to do. 
Yeah, no, it's very, very good advice too, because this way you can stay in sync with what is actually happening and not worry about what might happen tomorrow and just focus on what is happening. And when something changes, like you said, if it starts raining, you can adjust accordingly. Yeah, predicting is a dangerous game, particularly over short periods. I think we believe that you can make conclusions about what specific asset classes are going to do over the long term, say five to ten years. You can make some meaningful predictions about that, but what they're going to do next month or this year is, I believe that's a loser's game. Understood, 100%. So, Jim, next question for you, since you've been managing money for a long time, or actually, what are some timeless investing lessons you've learned along the way that you'd like to share with the audience? Um, emotions, one, I've, I touched on it a little bit earlier. Uh, emotions run very high uh, when the markets are falling. That's when people are the most emotional about their money. And I think uh, people would be well served to try and minimize the investment changes that they make during that time period. So the time to be talking about what our plan is going to be to protect principal when the stock markets are falling, the time to talk about that is now not two years from now when the markets are falling because emotions run high and that's when investing mistakes are made. And so uh, that would be a big one. And then the other one I mentioned earlier is that it's related and that is there are probably 12 different investment strategies I could give you today that'll work over the next decade, but none of them will work unless you stick with it. So make sure you believe in what you're doing. Make sure it makes sense. Make sure you believe in the advisor that's helping you uh, arrive at this strategy and uh, make sure you have the commitment to stick with it even when it seems a little bit out of favor uh, at the moment. I love it. That's, so avoid style drift is what you're saying. Jumping from style to style. Yeah, that's one way. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what are some mistakes or timeless mistakes you see people make and how should people avoid them besides those two? I mean, making emotional decisions and jumping from style to style. Um, emotional mistakes. I would say uh, placing too much emphasis on what they heard at a cocktail party. Okay. Tips, avoid tips, <laughs> rumors, yep. Uh, it, it, and also it's the fear of messing, of missing out when your friend talks about 2019 would be a great uh, year for this. Uh, the fear of missing out if you feel like your buddy at the cocktail party uh, earned more than you did, uh, that can often lead to emotional mistakes or lost less than you did. And so I think it's the keeping up with the Joneses can definitely uh, turn around and bite you in the investing business. Uh, that would be a big one. And then the other would be um, 
thinking that there's much correlation between having more money and being happier. Wow, that's we see just as many rich, unhappy people as we do unhappy people who are not rich. Let's talk about that for a minute, even though it's off of the investing topic, but it has to do with overall well-being and mental health and all that fun stuff. And part of what we're doing here is going out to, to preserve your peace of mind, if you will, for the long term. How do you, you mean, you've managed a lot of money and you've dealt with a lot of clients. How do you define happiness and what are some traits that you see people make that help them be happy over some people that aren't happy? Oh, then I, now you're touching on a topic that we have done a lot of studying on. Nice. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you so. where it, That's I'll why tell I went you there. where it Shoot. really applies. Shoot. And I think this might apply to the audience in the advisory business. It applies to business owners, particularly business owners who are thinking about selling their business. One of the, you know, we have learned a lot about this from our own experience, right. selling the firm, buying it back. We've acquired advisors. We have uh, helped clients through the sale of their business. And so we've developed a great deal of empathy on this topic. And one of the things that we will do that not all advisors do for their business owner clients is really get them to spend time on their life post-transaction. Have you given enough time to think about it? Are, are you aware that the stress of running the company might well be replaced by the stress of trying to figure out what to do with your life afterward? Right. And so selling your business for a lot of money may or may not increase your happiness. And so... Um, well, I've followed a number of happiness experts. One is Daniel Gibson at Harvard, and he talks a lot about people are happiest during the struggle towards something that's meaningful to them. Right. Towards Even if it's goal. not a struggle, but towards the effort. Uh, they are happiest during the effort to uh, something that's important to them. So in the end... Uh, you have to recognize, at least the business owner clients have to recognize that selling the business could, could very well result in them being less happy, not more happy. So the bottom line, uh, what people need, I think you asked, what, what, what should people be keeping in mind in order to try to be happier? Right. Single, single biggest word is gratitude. Nice. And uh, I was at a uh, happiness workshop at one of the advisor conferences last fall, and his, his hook was, at the end of this session, I'm going to give you the secret to happiness. And in the end, he said, the secret to happiness are the words, thank you. I love it. Just imagine, Adam, just imagine if you set a personal goal that instead of saying thank you to people five times a day, as you normally would, you're going to say thank you 25 times a day. Wow. Awesome. What, would, what would change <laughs> in your life? I'll tell you one thing that would change in your life. You would spend your time looking around for things to say thank you for. Right. 100%. And that, my friend, is the secret to happiness. I love it. The attitude of gratitude. It's perfect. 
and being on the lookout for things you should be thankful for because so many of us are on the lookout for things that are annoying or a problem. Right, and complaining or playing the victim card or whatever the other unhappy traits are that people are just chronically obsessed doing over and over and over again. Yep. Yeah, no, I love it. And even with your point too, the means are more important than the end. It's not about the end. It's about enjoying the process and going through the ups and downs and the struggles and whatever they are, trials, tribulations, what have you, because that's the journey. Enjoy it. Enjoy it and just accept the fact, back to my business owner clients, that after you're, you've sold the business and you got all this money in the bank, you're going to miss it. Yeah. Accept it. 100%. And, and then what? Right. So, uh, yeah. Nice. But it, as we said, it has very little to do with how much money you have. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's one of those fallacies, right? People say money can't buy happiness or does money make you happy? And people debate it on and on and on again. And they're just focusing on the entirely, they're missing the whole point. They're focusing on the, the wrong thing. It's nothing to do with the money. The money's a byproduct. No, money can buy you a more luxurious form of misery. That's about it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right, great. Well, Jim, this has been an absolute pleasure. Before, uh, the final question I have for you today is what's the best piece of advice you can share with the audience? About investing today or just in general? In general. Well, one thing that we are hearing a lot of is the mixing of politics and their portfolio. Okay. You know, Trump's going to do this. Trump's not going to do this. What if the Democrats win? What should I do with my portfolio? Or I'm worried about the budget or whatever Congress is or these days is not doing and how should I impact that? How should I uh, have that affect my portfolio? And our answer is 100% consistent on this. Never, never make investment decisions based on politics. Uh, The only thing the markets cared about with Let's just take the current administration. The, the only material things that the market cares about are cutting taxes on corporations, which they did, which clearly helped the stock market, and trade wars and tariffs, which have a direct effect on the economy. Everything else that's happened is a non-issue for investors. Look at the impeachment trial. The ups and downs of that the last few weeks, the markets completely shrugged it off. Um, You can think about politics, you can think about investing, but don't think about both at the same time. Yeah, I love that. It's the old line of it's the economy stupid, right? Way back uh, during the 90s. And I always tell people with politics and their markets or with their money, it's the simple, simple, same thing. It's the economy. What political, all the political noise out there. Okay, how does it directly impact the economy? If it doesn't directly impact right. the economy, then it has nothing to do with your portfolio. It doesn't matter. It's just noise. And you care about what happens on Wall Street, not on Pennsylvania Avenue. Yeah, or Main Street, exactly. I love it. Well, Jim, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute delight. and We've learned a lot. And um, before we go, what is the best way for people to get in touch with you? Ah, yes. Our, uh, our firm is SBSB, Sullivan, Bruett, Spiros, and Blaney. Uh, our website is sbsbllc.com. 
and they can always first name dot last name. So uh, my email would be jim.bruet at sbsbllc.com. And I'd love to hear from any of your listeners with any comments, things that uh, I could do better, <laughs> or any comments about any of the topics we raised. Love to hear from them. Beautiful. Well, Jim, thank you so much, and have a fantastic day. All right. Thank you, Adam.